invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans 14. What is the single most important question you can ask when opening up the Word of God? It is, what does this text teach me about who God is and what He is like? That is the single most important question because our hearts respond to this. Who He is and what He is like. So if you can uh, mine that from every Bible text, your heart will respond. And, and here's the reality. Our heart always responds to the text. Our heart always responds to God. Either our hearts respond in hatred and disobedience, or our hearts respond in affection and humble obedience. We simply cannot come to Jesus by faith if we don't hear who God is and what he's like. We will never come to Jesus if we don't know who God is. And that we have offended this holy God, a God who is worthy of our affection and our obedience, and we disobey him, we will never ever come to Jesus because we will think we're fine. We will think that there is nothing wrong with us, that yo, though we feel some guilt, there's no reason for it, and we're, we're okay, we're really good people, and we're just going to keep doing life. We would never come to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins did we not know what God was like, that he is holy and just, that he deserves a pure people. And yet, we have rebelled. We walk contrary to his own heart, his own will. The text tells us that by who God is. What is he like? He is a God who is full of anger and wrath towards sin because it robs him of the, the glory that he deserves and the glory that you and I need to see and behold in order to be humbled, to come to him, to have our sins forgiven we need to see God as glorified. And if we don't, we'll never come. We'll never turn. We'll never be forgiven. And we will perish in eternity in hell. So God needs to be most glorified in the earth and most glorified in our lives. And so when we sin, we rob him of that glory. And so we are damned. And so the best thing for us as a humanity is the glory of God on full display. But it's not if we don't see who God is and what he's like, we just keep doing our own thing, living for ourselves and never giving him glory for all that he deserves. We would never come to hear the gospel of Christ did we not know who God is. This God who is full of wrath towards that sin because it robs him of glory, it robs us of eternity. And so he is wrathful towards it. He has hatred for it. And he will punish the wrongdoer but we also know who God is and what he is like in that he is faithful and he is, has love that is steadfast and never leaves his people and never abandons his people. And he always is there for his people. We know who God is and what he is like from the text. And every Bible text, we can discover who God is, what he's like. Even a Bible text about a human being solely. You could think, if you see a human, maybe that's a failure. You see the sin of David, for example. You can see who God is and what he's like. God is not unfaithful like David was. God is not a murderous at heart like David was. Every text, you can see what God is like based on the situation of the text. And that's the beautiful thing, is every Bible text is really a display who God is and what he is like. If you read a chapter of the Bible, you happen to read a chapter of the Bible, and after some time, you're still unable to answer the question, you know, 
a little better who is God or what is he like, even based on this passage. If you can read through Bible text and not answer that, you've not read the word of God. You've looked at letters on a paper. Because the word of God is living and active. It is uh, active in that it will transform your heart one way or another, either to cold rebellion or warm affection. The word of God invokes a response. The word of God, not just letters on a paper, but when you were discovering who God is and what he is like, it invokes a response. It makes sense because in the Bible, we, we not only see God and we not only hear from God, but we experience who he is. And that stirs up in us a response. I say this because often we can wrongly read, study, or listen to the Bible and truly gain no spiritual um, or lasting benefit. But we want that from every text. And so I want that from Romans 14. This will be our close off of this chapter. We've been in for a number of weeks. I want to read the entirety of the chapter for you. And with you thinking in mind, who is God and what is he like? As we read this text, why is he so concerned about these people and the way they are acting? What does this speak about God? Who is he? What is he like? I'm going to read his word, chapter 14. Let's hear what God says. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. Do not quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while another person eats only vegetables. Let the one who eats, uh, let the one, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Uh, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord, both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then let each of us give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on, on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing in itself is unclean, but it is unclean to anyone who thinks it is unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. But what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. 
It is not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes a brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. May God use this chapter to uh, glorify himself. So first thing, I want us to notice a few things about who God is and what he is like in this text. Right off in verse 1, you notice that God, in verse 4 as well, God is welcoming. God is welcoming. It says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, what? Correct him? Show him his wrong? As for the one who is weak, maybe immature, maybe doesn't know any better, what are you supposed to do? Stop him? No. Welcome him. Welcome him. And then it says in, in verse 3 at the end, uh, let, the one, uh, let not the one who despises, or uh, let not the one who eats, sorry, despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for the reason why you're not supposed to do this, the reason why you're not supposed to despise the one who is unlike you or judge the one who's not like you, is the reason given is God has welcomed him. So though you, in your own natural inclination, would be not to welcome him, God has welcomed him because the entrance to the kingdom of God is not, as it says later in the chapter, not about eating or drinking. It's not about the opinions you have or the choices you've made. It is about Christ and him crucified. Being welcomed by God is about that alone and not about all the secondary things. As much as there are many things that are important, it is Christ alone that welcomes us into the household of God. And on that, he said, on that characteristic of who God is and what he is like, it, it shows us really what the family of God is like. Think of how diverse the family of God is. All people from all tribes, tongues, nations. People speaking Swahili and Chinese and Arabic. People who are old and people who are young, welcomed. Because of this God who is not just distinct in saying, I like this people or this family. God, since the beginning, has had this global plan for a, a, all the nations to be a part of his people. He told it to Abraham in Genesis. We see it from the beginning. It wasn't like this was plan B to welcome all the nations, to welcome all the different types of people. God has been and always has been welcoming to all who are diverse. How many people do you know that feel unwelcomed in a church? Feel like they don't fit in because of the culture of the church? Or, or the, the culture of the church is so tight-knit or so unique that anyone who came in might feel so out of place that they would not come back. And you wonder why that is. Because if God and his family is so diverse and so welcoming, it's so vast, you have... Uh, you know, kids who wear all black with pierced eyebrows and, and eyelids, probably. And then you have, you know, people who wear hats with white little hair underneath them. You have all the diversity, but yet that's sometimes not reflected in a local church gathering. It, yes, there are differences and it, it makes things difficult sometimes, but not for the, would it not be for the good of God's family for us to set our opinions and our, even our cultures aside? to reflect who God is and what he is like in, in his family? How many people have felt unwelcome by church because they think, I wouldn't fit in there? 
You know, I'm a, I'm a biker. I, I don't wear a suit. I, you know, I've, I don't own a suit. Um, I'm homeless. You know, I don't have money like that. I, I don't even have a car. I got noisy kids, and it seems like all those people are quiet in there. <laughs> How many people walking into a church would feel unwelcome because of the culture that's there? Yet that culture doesn't really reflect the heart of God. God does not say you're, you're welcome if you're quiet. You're welcome if you're all put together. You're welcomed if you have all your ducks in a row or you can uh, recite the Apostles' Creed. Then you're welcome. God does not say that. He says, come to me all who are heavy laden and burdened. All of you. doesn't matter what you look like or what you wear. Come. So the heart of God being so welcoming, it causes a response in us. Not only are we to be full of gratitude because we're welcomed, no matter what we brought to the table, which was nothing to benefit God. We're welcomed with, with open hands, with broken hearts. We're welcomed with all of our quirks. We're welcomed with all of our struggles and all of our dirt. We're welcome in the presence of God. And so it stirs up in us a gratitude, but it should also cause a response of reflecting that. We ought, also ought to then be welcoming we don't want to fail to represent the kingdom of God. And it's really hard. Obviously, our community is, is very, um, yeah, we're all of a similar culture. And so it's, it, we don't have this multicultural diversity in our towns. Uh, that's just part of being rural. Uh, but it doesn't mean that, you know, the, the church of God in, in whole or even in, in urban centers should look like one thing. And it doesn't need to be just like, well, you're not a church if you don't have multicultures. Well, our culture doesn't have cultures around us. And so people can't look and say, but, but our church must be noticed as hospitable because God was hospitable to us. And so our response then to who God is and what he's like, he is hospitable, he is welcoming. And so therefore his people, we should be the same. And we should be full of gratitude because we are welcome when we are misfits weekly, we are still misfits. You might think you got the culture and you got the talk down or you got what you're supposed to wear or, or, or how you're supposed to act in church. A lot of people don't know how to quote unquote act in church. They don't know that, you know, at this time we just stay quiet kind of and we just listen. Like imagine it's just like a foreign world in a church. And what do people need but for us to reflect God that says it doesn't matter if you get things right or you know how to approach me. Just come. And so we then also reflect that or should reflect that based on who God is and what he's like to us. That's the first thing we notice about God in Romans 14 that causes us to respond with gratitude and reflection. It gives us goals. The second thing uh, we see in God is that God is one. We see it also in verse 1. Here, he has such a distaste for quarreling because it doesn't reflect him. God is one and, and three persons in one being. But yet there is a unity. A unity. They are one. And so if we want to reflect the heart of God, we ought to be one as God is one. That's what Jesus prayed for. When he prayed for you and for me, he prayed that we would be one. He says in John 17, he says, I'm asking that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. It is, the character of Christ is at stake when we are divided, when we are not one on the right things. So it doesn't mean we need to agree on everything. Romans 14 is the greatest example of that. It shows that you can have difference of opinion, 
and yet still be one. That you can be diverse in your opinion and still be one where it counts. We are to be one as Jesus prayed that we would be in him. In him. One with the Father. With Jesus and the Holy Spirit. That we would be one, united with one heart and one goal. And what would that ought to be? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. If that's our, our oneness and that's what we do in all things and we aim to do that, with that as our goal, then we will be one. Even though we have secondary opinions and even cultures and ways we do things, we'll have oneness about the important things, about who He is. Uh, about wanting to represent God in his unity with his one heart. He doesn't have a divided heart. That Jesus didn't have a different agenda than the Father. No, they had one agenda. That was that, that Jesus would die to save the lost. Save sinners, you and me. And so, if that's Jesus' agenda, why shouldn't it be our agenda? Whatever we do, do it so, so that we might seek and save the lost. We're not saving the lost, and Jesus ultimately seeks them. But we are his instruments in that process. And so we ought to have the same heart and mind as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. We might be in them with the exact same heart and mind. The lost. The lost sinners who would be perishing forever, finding forgiveness and love and welcome in Christ. That's why he says, verse 1, do not quarrel over opinions. Don't quarrel. Don't fight about opinions. Don't divide yourself about opinions because if you do, then people will see what really matters to them. What's the primary thing? Is it that they're all the same age? Is it they all like the same music? Is they all look the same and act the same and dress the same? Is that what matters here? Or is it that they all gather no matter what they look like and they worship him together? Don't quarrel over opinions. So we respond to God who is one by also being so thankful that he's not divided, but then also thankful that we can reflect that amongst one another. So God is one. The third thing is God sustains. You look at verse 4 and it says, This, this person will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. The Lord is able to make him stand. God sustains his people. That in me just gives me a real rest and assurance. Because if I look at my own reserves and my own tank, I'm running on empty all the time. But, but God is able to sustain me. God's able to get me through the day. He gives me enough grace for today that he'll sustain me. And I trust that and I believe it and I've seen it. I've been able to walk through that, as have you. Every day, God gives you enough. He sustains you. But more than that, He doesn't just sustain you mentally or physically. Because we know that one day, our bodily sustenance will, will pass. We will die. Mentally, there are days where you are not clear in your thinking. But spiritually and, and eternally, God will sustain you. He will keep you His child. And that is so reassuring because if you think about your own inclinations away from God, it is reassuring to know that He will sustain you. That though you don't have the strength to sustain yourself, though your efforts are failing, God will sustain you. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6 says, I am sure of this, 
that he who began the good work in you, he will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He will do it. He is committed to you to bring you to glory. If you are his son or his daughter, he will sustain you. And that's so reassuring to know that that is who God is and what he's like. And to know that he's the one who will sustain you, you, you can go further into like, how can he do it? Because the reason we can't do it is because we're weak, we're frail, we're, we're, we're broken, we're sinful, we have li limited resources, but God's all the opposite. He has unlimited resources, unlimited strength and power. He is not bound by time or by energy. God has more than we could ever ask or imagine. And so in our weakness, we look through it all and say, I'm so glad that God is the one who sustains me because he's not running dry when I already have. God sustains us. And so that uh, provokes in us a response of, of gratitude, of rest, of trust, of faith. God sustains us. The fourth thing we learn about who God is or what he is like is that God is worthy of honor. You see it in verse 6. The heart of, of these people, there's these two groups of people in Romans 14, the heart of both of them was the honor of God, the glory of God. It says, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord, and the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Whatever they're doing, they're doing it so that God is honored, adored, glorified, as he so rightly deserves. And so the response for us is not just to think, well, which one is right? Which person is right? Which opinion is right? Instead, we're to look and say, how can I glorify God no matter what choice I make? Because he deserves it. He deserves the honor. The honor. We don't have much of an honor or shame culture here in our society. I think it'll start to come more and more as people shame you for not doing what they like. But we don't have a real shame culture. But in the Middle Eastern culture where the Bible was written, it was all about shame and honor. And all about honoring your father and all about honoring your parents and your family. God is worthy of honor, respect. You listen to him. You speak highly of him. You make sure that others speak highly of him. That's what it means to honor him. You don't honor God if you let others slander him. That doesn't honor him. And so then our response to realizing that God is worthy of honor is not only honor within ourselves, but I'm going to make sure and I'm going to strive so that you can honor God too. No matter what your opinion is, no matter what your, your difference is with me, if you're doing it to honor God, I want to support you. That's the point. I want to support you in honoring God because I think he's worth it. I don't think you're right. I think you're wrong. Obviously, there's two opinions and one's got to be right. And so... Paul's saying it doesn't matter which one's right in this, in this point because they're both trying to honor God. And so your job then is to support them as they honor God. Support them as they honor God because you know that God's worthy of it. So that's why you're going to give them the tools, give them the space they need to honor God because you know it doesn't dishonor him and it might not be your way, but it is a way that brings honor to your God. You're going to encourage that. You're going to help that. Not only does God uh, worthy of honor, but fifth, he is deserving of our thanks. Also in verse six, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He's worthy of thanks. 
He has done far more than we could ever thank him for. You, you could try to come up with 100,000 things a day and you still would not have covered everything God has given you. Never. <laughs> would you? And that's why it's amazing. You know, we're supposed to pray without ceasing. And what does that mean? It means you're to be giving thanks at all times. Same passage. Giving thanks at all times. You're never going to run out of things to give God thanks for. If you do, just start studying the human body. Every cell and what it does and how it operates. Man, that's by God's hand. and by It's just amazing what you can give God thanks for. If you need to think about what God has done for you and you ought to give thanks, just pause and look around. You have eyes to look. You have ears to take in sounds. You have nose to smell. All these things you can take in, not just to smell themselves, but the nose to smell it, the brain to enjoy it. Oh, there is so much to give thanks to God for, for what he has done for us. And it's amazing too, because this is across the board. You know, there are people who uh, are still not, they don't love Jesus. They haven't had their sins forgiven by Jesus, but they still can look around and give and realize what's been given to them. They, they Obviously, they try to conclude different things about where it's all come from. But at the end of the day, what's Thanksgiving? You know, I don't understand how people still celebrate Thanksgiving when they don't believe in a God. To whom are they thankful? It makes no sense to me. But we know that God deserves our thanks because of all that he has done for us in general. But all the more if God has rescued you from your sin. If he's rescued you from the power of sin. He's rescued you from damnation and hell that you so deserve. God deserves our thanks. And that, that just overflows into every area of life. And, and the beauty of giving thanks is you can invite others into your giving thanks. You, you can express thanks to God with others present. And they can't deny it. They can't deny it. And so the more you're going to do that, the more you're going to give God the honor he deserves. And so it goes from there. When you realize that God deserves our thanks and that's who he is, it's going to change how you respond and how you live. You're going to live in gratitude. And so if you're grateful for what you have been given, you, you don't take advantage of that. You, you don't just misuse what you've been given if you're grateful for it. Um, you, you use it accordingly. You use it well. You don't mistreat it. God has given us life and breath and salvation. And so we give him thanks. The next thing we notice about who God is or what he is like in verse 9 is that God in Christ is the Lord. He is king. It says, For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. For this end. This was the end, the goal for why he died and rose, that he might be Lord. He might lead. He might have the affection of our hearts, the allegiance of our hearts, that he might guide us to the truth, that he might be that truth to us and for us. He is Lord and King. And if he is Lord and King, our response to that then is submission, is following, is affection and, and uh, allegiance. We don't want our hearts to be divided. You can only worship one king. You can only give homage properly to one king. You can't be divided in your, in your lordship. There's one lord of your heart. 
And what's really hard about that is if you know your, your heart as much as I know mine, I know that there's so many things within the day, a moment, a time where other things are grasping at the lordship of my heart, right? Where I am, I am prone to maybe worship comfort or, or, or laziness or, or just the easy way out. Or I'm prone to be selfish. And, and in those moments, Christ is not on his throne. I've dethroned him. And I've said, this thing is a little more important than you right now. But that's where we ought to know our temptations. We ought to know the things that want to rob Christ of his lordship in our hearts, in our lives. We ought to know them and wage war against them. So when we know that Christ is Lord and should be Lord, then we, then we always have to think, how am I to defend that throne in my heart? Because I want him to be Lord. He so rightly deserves. He is Lord. He's the only good Lord. He's the only good leader of my life. The only rightful king of my heart. So what am I going to do to defend that? What am I going to do to ensure that stays true? Next moment is to know your weaknesses. To know what parts of your life and your heart and this world are waging war on that throne of your heart. And say, Christ is my king. He is my king. That's not my king. And so you need to be consciously aware of who your king is, who your Lord is. And when you know that it is Christ the Lord, you respond differently. And then here in the context of Romans 14, the opinion is not your Lord. It doesn't win at the end of the day. It's not about winning the argument. That's the main thing. That's not the end. The end that Christ died for was that he might be Lord. Not that your opinion might win. Not that you might be right or the other person might be wrong. It's that Christ might be Lord. And so, if you're thinking about others who disagree with you, rather than try to convince them of a different opinion, try to encourage them in the Lordship of Christ and following in His Lordship. And, and the more you do, the more that they will um, obviously walk rightly before the Lord, but then you'll enjoy their fellowship more because you're, again, united as God is united because you're united around the right things. And so then your differences begin to look minimal. You don't care that this is a huge age gap of 50 years. You don't care that you would never be able to share the wardrobe of the same. You don't care that you can share music styles because you have Christ together as Lord. That's a beautiful thing. When so many are feeling fractured and alone, we have a united front together. The Lordship of Christ in our own hearts and in our lives. So we ought to encourage one another in that. Guard our hearts, guard others' hearts from things robbing that lordship. The next thing we know and from this text about who God is, what he's like, is verse 10. God is judge. He is judge. Here it's saying, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. God knows everything about us. God knows every thought, every action from yesterday and from tomorrow. God knows the intentions of your heart, the motivations of your actions. They're all bare before him. When you know that, there's no skirting around it. There's no covering it up. And you stand before God and the response properly as judge is humbled. Humbled. Speechless. Knowing that he's got all the facts right and you don't. And in the judge's book, you are guilty. 
guilty as guilty can be. And you know that. But sometimes we try to live life like it's not true. And it's only when we begin to know God as judge that we can come truly before him and say, you are perfect in your judgment and your judgment is right on me. And you come empty and you come humble and you say, I have nothing to bring but to say, I'm guilty and I need a, I need a savior. So to know God as judge, if you don't know God as judge, many people try to eliminate God as judge. They try to say, well, that, you know, that's not the kind of God we want to talk about. We don't want to talk about that. Then you also eliminate the opportunity for people to come humble before the cross. You come humbly before the cross because you realize he is judge over your life. And you'll stand before the judgment seat either as a guilty, condemned sinner or as a, a one who is a, a blood-bought, redeemed son or daughter of the king. Because Christ stood on your behalf as that guilty, condemned sinner. It's one or the other. Everyone will stand before the judgment seat of God. But how will you stand? How will you stand? Well, obviously, we won't stand. <laughs> we'll be flat on our face. And if we could get further down and more humbled and more ashamed than that, we would. But Hebrews tells us we can actually approach the throne with confidence because of what Christ has done. We approach the throne. We approach God who we should and rightly we would fear because of our sin. We actually get the privilege of approaching him standing with confidence and boldness to be able to say, Father, all because of what Christ has done. We get to stand before this judge. And so realizing that God is judge creates multiple responses in us. The response of fear, right fear, good fear, the response of gratitude, knowing that Christ has been judged on our behalf. It does so much for us to realize and remember that God is judge, but it also re reminds us that we are not. And that's what this text in 14, that's why Paul mentions it here, that he kind of brings out this characteristic of who God is, that he is judge, and you are not. So though you may have an opinion, though you may think that your way is right, you're not judge. So, so don't bother. Leave it to God. Leave the vengeance to God. Leave the judgment to God. Your job as a son or daughter of the king is to present him. To present him. To, to show people who God is. And then say, will you come to him? And the only way you're going to come to him is by faith in the Lord Jesus, by standing as one who is condemned, but you're undone by mercy because of Christ. When God is judge, he is in his right place, and so are we, that we are not. And so then it helps us to not to judge other people, helps us to leave it to God, and just do our job of presenting the message of the cross to others. But not only is God judge, God loves. Verse 15, the greatest display of his love, and as we are supposed to walk in love. If your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He died for them in love. And if you are going to tear them down, you're not walking in love as God did, as Christ did, as he does. He cares that you are walking in love with them, that you love them, you love others. When Even Jesus, right? The greatest commandments. Love God first, love others. 
It's because it represents who God is and what he's like. He loves them with all their kinks and quirks. He loves them. And so then you ought to also realize that they deserve your love because God loves them. God loves them in Christ. Christ died for them. And so we, as recipients of his love, then also extend that love towards others. A love that we did not deserve, we give to others. God loves. Next is that God is righteous. God is the only peace. And God is the ultimate joy. We find it in verse 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. The only place we're going to find peace, real peace, lasting peace, eternal peace is in God. He is our peace. The Prince of Peace. He is our peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding is our union with Christ. It is our knowing Him. The, the standing before the judge with peace because of Christ. He is our peace. He is our righteousness. Our righteousness. The, the righteousness that we could try to produce over ten lifetimes would never be sufficient because we still do wrong. So we need His righteousness. And He is our ultimate joy. He is our joy. And so as a response to this, obviously, if God is our righteousness, our peace, and our joy, we're to pursue Him for those things and not find those things elsewhere. We're not to look to our own righteousness, not to trust in our own righteousness or our own good deeds. We're not to look for peace in this world with financial security or health security. We're not to look for joy in relationships. We're to seek righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit that is in our union with God. And so then it gives us rest. And it also helps us to help others pursue that too. We help others to pursue their righteousness, not in the good works they do. Those are done out of gratitude towards God and not to earn God's love because we know God loves even when we don't do what is right and good. God still loves us. So we pursue God's righteousness, God's peace in Christ, and the joy that we have in knowing him. We pursue it and we help others to pursue it when we know this is what God is like and this is what his kingdom is about. We realize also that Christ, God in Christ, lastly, is our master. He is our master. And so then, when we know all these things to be true about who God is or what he is like, it ought to transform who we are and what we're like. But we could simply read through a text and think about disagreement in a church or disagreement among uh, brothers and sisters in Christ and think, okay, you know, others have opinions and that's what this text is kind of about. It's kind of, it's kind of about unity. But unity over what? This whole chapter is about unity in the body of Christ. But on what basis? On the basis of who God is and what he is like. And the beauty of that is he's not changing. He's not changing. And so every time you read the Bible, every time you study a passage, when you discover who God is and what he is like, he's not changing. And so you store that up in your heart. You store it up in your memory bank. You allow it to transform you in the moment and for the future. Because you know that's not going to be a, fasting pa a, a passing fad. That is something that you just have to get used to now and start doing now, and it's going to change. 
No, who God is and what he's like will remain. And so we're always, yes, we might respond differently and high, Lord willingly more maturely to who God is and what he's like, but he never changes. So this is the most valuable thing that you can do when you read and study the Bible is discover God. Not just things to do or things not to do, but discover who God is and what he is like. We get to unity in this chapter when we fixate ourselves on Christ above all things. When we help others to pursue Christ above all things. That's how we get to unity. Is, is ourselves not focusing on our opinion first, our comforts first, and me first. When we focus on Christ first. And then, having others have Christ first. When that's our focus, is not necessarily being right or wrong in an opinion, but pointing them to Christ, encouraging them in Christ, even if they have a difference of opinion. If they're glorifying Christ and you can see that, you encourage them in it. And that's where unity comes. There's diversity still. There's major difference still. But the unity comes in the faith. In the faith. When Paul prayed for the church at Philippi, he said, I'm praying that even though I'm absent from you, that you may be standing firm side by side for the faith of the gospel. For the gospel. That there would be nothing else that you're standing side by side. That if anything else, that it would never take the place of you're standing side by side for the gospel together. The gospel, the good news that yes, God is judge and God is holy and God is right, but God is loving and kind and will welcome you in Christ. The gospel. That Christ was raised to the end to be the Lord of all who would be in him. Stand firm in the gospel. Fixate your minds on Christ and help others to pursue Christ with all you have. That is where unity truly comes. It doesn't come in uniformity, looking the same, sounding the same, dressing the same, doing the same mantras. That's not where unity actually comes. And I think a lot of, you know, maybe the North American church is confused by that. We think unity means looking the same, being the same. It's not. Unity is having the same heart in Christ. And so then we fixate our minds on Christ, help others pursue Christ above all else. And then with the same measure of grace that you've been bestowed, the same measure of love that God has loved you and you experience, you dish it out. You, you pass it on to as many as you can. God's given you grace, you give grace. God's shown you love, you show love. God has given you, God has forgiven you, you forgive. That's where we strive after Christ and pursue unity together. When we do it this way, in Romans 14, based on the character of God, then you will have a way to honor God and give him thanks among his people, as he so rightly deserves. Let me pray for us. Well, God, you are um, worthy of our affection worthy of our love and our obedience, and we fail you, but yet you forgive us. You are merciful and gracious and kind towards us. And we do thank you for the body of Christ and the diversity in it, as much as sometimes the diversity makes us uncomfortable or it causes us to question. And we really struggle because we are uh, we do have our opinions. We have our, our thoughts. And so it's hard, God. We admit it is hard to apply this passage to our lives. But we're so thankful that it's here for us and that it 
is based upon the heart of who you are. That you are judge and therefore we are not. I think that's key. And so we need your help in, in understanding that. Even in these times now, we see Christians are, are biting one another and devouring one another over opinions. God, may that not be true of us. May you unite our hearts in Christ, that we would be so focused on honoring and glorifying you, that we're not focused on what others who have different opinions are doing, unless they are honoring you and we want to pursue that with them. Help us, O oh God, we need you at this time. Thank you for this text, because it honors you and glorifies you if we apply it to our lives. So would you help us? And would you receive that honor that you so rightly deserve in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.